fellow grievers, you have reached Season 3, Episode 25 of the Leftover Pieces Suicide Loss Conversations Podcast, and I'm Melissa, your host. Today is a down-the-rabbit-hole episode where I'm going to discuss a topic called implicit bias. And just stick with me. If it sounds complicated, I'm going to explain it, and I think that you will be as riveted as I was when I first realized the interwoven nature of implicit bias with suicide loss and even um, our healing journey. But before I dive down the rabbit hole, I want to mention just a couple of things and I'll be really quick. First, to all of you who have rated and reviewed the podcast, thank you so much. It means so much to me. If you have not rated and reviewed the podcast on Apple Podcasts, I would love to ask you to please take a moment to do that for me. Even if you don't listen on Apple right now, I think it's one of the only places that you can rate and review a podcast and is one of the places algorithm wise that helps this podcast be more discoverable by all of the grievers who need it. So again, I'd appreciate if you'd rate and review on Apple. And then if you would subscribe, you will get notified every time a new episode drops. And I really appreciate that. Second, do you know that I host online moms Zoom support groups every week? If you don't, I've been doing this since September, maybe October of this past year in 2021. And I have an amazing community of moms that I interact with every week in a support group setting that's private on Zoom. You do have to register one time, but after you register, you're welcome to attend all of the groups that I host. There's a couple of options available. And so if you are a mom or you know somebody who's a mom who has lost a child to suicide loss, please recommend them to consider trying out the support groups. And that brings me to my third point, which is if you haven't checked out my website recently, I would love you to do so. That's where you can find all of the information on the support groups and the support community. But there's so much more there. There's resources for everyone who's lost someone to suicide. There's links to my books. There's lots of things there. And I'm constantly adding and changing things. It's just www.theleftoverpieces.com. And then fourth and final today, I just want to remind you that if you know of a guest or you would like to be considered as a guest or you actually just have a um, recommendation for a topic that you'd like me to address in an upcoming rabbit hole episode this next season, please feel free to message or email me. And again, the best way to reach me is always on Instagram through DMs. Or go to my website, theleftoverpieces.com, and there's several ways to contact me there. So without further ado, let's go down the rabbit hole and discuss implicit bias today. So I'm going to start by posing the question and then defining like I often do. But what is implicit bias? It sounds so confusing, right? And there is implicit bias and explicit bias bias, and I will discuss both of them as far as the differences briefly. But for the sake of this, we're going to be discussing implicit bias. So what it is, is our unconscious attitude or stereotype. 
and it perpetuates stigma, often accidentally, because when you say the word unconscious, remember that one of the things I talk about with our unconscious mind, which does apply directly to things like our healing after a loss by suicide. But 80% of everything we do and think is driven by our unconscious mind, not by our conscious mind. There's only 10 to 20% of things that we do see or believe that come from our waking conscious mind. Most of them are embedded in our unconscious mind. So therefore, the very idea that this is an implicit where the implicit bias lies might make a little bit more sense to you when you think about how am I not more aware of this. So what it is, is a form of bias that occurs automatically and unintentionally, that nevertheless affects judgments, decisions and behaviors. So an easy way to lay this out for you is the usual suspects in the world that we think of, when we're talking about implicit bias has to do with race, age, gender, ability, sexual orientation, and yes, mental health factors in there too. It's often not the most common thought of thing when we think of stereotypes or stigmas that are surrounding different things that are, well, different around us. Culture, media, and our upbringing all contribute to the amount of implicit bias we have towards any one of these groups. And just for a minute, before I talk about why I'm discussing this and how it applies, I want to tell you that what explicit bias is, is just the opposite. It's the intentional or conscious bias that we know we have. So if we are of a certain belief, and we know that we believe that way, we project that we believe a certain way, either for or against a certain belief system or group or ideology, then that's our explicit bias. That's the one that we're putting out in the world, the one we, you know, believe in externally, and can put words to. Sometimes our explicit and implicit biases might be the same. But it might surprise you to know that oftentimes, they're not the same. We may explicitly or outwardly be putting out one train of thought that we believe in from a moral or thought level. But due to our culture, media and possibly upbringing, a lot of times our upbringing factors into these things heavily, the implicit or internal bias in our subconscious mind that we may not want to address is of opposite thinking and kind of counterintuitive to those. And so as you can probably imagine, this can be something difficult to deal with, because a lot of it, perception in general, is bias. And perception can become our reality, because it's what we think, and what we think becomes our reality. And if we're not intentional, if we allow ourselves to just go on autopilot and be driven by our subconscious, then oftentimes, I would say we're probably not going to be happy with the results of how we behave, what we say or how we act towards a situation or a person or a specific uh, stereotype. And the most relevant example that probably makes sense or will help 
describe this to most people is that race, we know race is a big, big um, bias and stigma and that unfortunately we're still not as far along with prejudice and bias as we should be in our world. And I would say that probably outwardly, most people would say, I'm not racist. I don't have any racist feelings or thoughts. And I think that we support the BLM movement and we support all of these um, efforts in order to just make people equally important in all of our eyes as they should be. But what I will tell you is that if you go back to the idea of how most of us were raised or the culture or area that we were raised in, how our family thought, what media perpetuates, more of us than want to admit have implicit bias where race is concerned. And I would say I'm probably both sides of the fence. I'm not by any means saying just white towards black. I'm saying um, black towards whites, whites towards blacks, browns. All of us have some implicit bias built into us based on the culture and family that we were brought up in. Now, when I say that we can do better and that if we allow ourselves to go on, um, you know, unconscious drive and just go on autopilot, we're going to not do and say the right things. And I would also challenge you to say we're not going to progress the way we should. Because because of that implicit bias, if we're 80% driven by it, then just do the math. So we have to be aware, we have to choose to be aware and to bring our implicit bias to meet our explicit bias. And that only happens with effort and choice and education and immersion, things like that, that I won't go into today, but it's the same thing that occurs with mental health bias and stigma. We have to bring it to the forefront. We have to talk about it. We have to immerse ourselves in it. We have to be willing to, to face our fear on it. And if we do those things, we can make a difference in all of these areas. And I realize I digress a little bit, but that's kind of what these rabbit holes are about, right? So for me, I know firsthand how much implicit bias can affect our relationships, because one of my primary relationships in my life, back at the time my son died six years ago, is no longer one of my primary relationships. And I would put, if you had to list a reason on a form, like say like when you fill out a divorce form and it says irreconcilable differences on my form for why this relationship almost dissolved. And even though it still exists today is very, very, very different than it was before. I would list implicit bias as the reason. And that's complicated and simple all at once. And without going into the story, I'll tell you that this is one of the people six years ago that I would have listed in the top three people in my life that would have been there for me if I had a crisis or trauma occur. And yet I spent the first two years after my son died with this relationship being nothing but a struggle because of all of the, I believe, implicit biases she held towards suicide, the type of people that died by suicide, saying the word suicide, talking about suicide loss and depression, and really sad things. And 
we fought it for two years at two, the two year mark, I tried to say, okay, I can't do this anymore. Um, this is just some way I can't have you feel if you're going to be a primary person in my life. And yet I allowed the person to talk me into, um, trying to work, quote unquote, work things out. Then we spent the next two years, quote unquote, trying to work things out. But really what that equaled was a few weeks of per, per, you know talking about it and I'm mostly brushing it back under the rug and proceeding forward. And at the four-year mark, friends, I was exactly where I had been at the two-year mark. I literally remember looking back at something I wrote at the two-year mark and said, I could have written this today. So there had been no progression in my eyes of the relationship being genuinely supportive and caring and her implicit biases towards suicide. And again, the type of people that would die by suicide and all of those things remained the same. And it caused a big riff and eventually a falling out And the last two years have have been mostly apart, we are slowly starting to speak again, it is a family member. Um, a cousin who was a lot like a sister, same age as me, grew up very, very close. Um, but we are barely in contact now. It's definitely kind of a family check-in. We have alluded to the fact that we should talk more at some point, but I, I know for a fact it will never be the same. And that just is what it is. Because I... I can't make her want to face those implicit biases. I can't make her want to educate herself and think differently. I tried the best that I knew how, but it's not something she's comfortable with. It's not something in the realm of something she's willing or able to tackle. And I can accept that as much as I don't like it, as much as it's hurtful, I've accepted it because we just can't make people live or believe in a place that they can't. And it's fair, right? It's what it is. Or maybe it's not fair, but it is what it is. So in sharing that story, I guess it allows me to kind of go into the next place of why am I even discussing this? Can it be changed? Can we change implicit biases in people? Well, I think yes, we can. But it goes back to, first of all, the the people have to want to change it. So I say that always starts with ourselves. And I would be lying if I told you that before losing my son to suicide, I were to say I don't have any stereotypes, preconceived notions or implicit biases, if I were to use that word about suicide and the people that in their lives because I know I did. I know I did because of the things that I've labeled and told you about, which is culture, media and upbringing. All of those things contributed to how I felt in my subconscious about suicide and people that would end their life. Now, I will also tell you that the moment my son, who I knew, and the type of person that I knew he was and all those things, the minute he ended his life, for me as his mother, almost all of those came crashing to the ground. Like I suddenly, unfortunately, knew and saw things on an entirely different level. It doesn't mean that happened for everybody around me. I think mothers have an innate ability to um, see things a little differently where their children are concerned. But I, I had those biases too. And to say that even though they came crashing down, that they weren't still laying there as part of the pieces around me, that challenged me as I started to 
pick up the pieces and figure out what I was going to do next. They did. They challenged me greatly because those biases are part of what holds us prisoner and becomes part of the problem of our own self-shame and blame game. And sometimes I've talked to many people who have a hard time even saying the word suicide. They don't want to tell people that their loved one died by suicide. They don't want to say the word. I know that some people have a hard time even saying their loved one died. So when you have a hard time doing that, think of how hard it is to then go into something that's as stigmatized as suicide. And grievers, this is truly a judgment-free zone. You can come to me in my support groups or, or online and say anything to me about your grief journey, and I will never pass judgment for you to on you for feeling it, thinking it, or saying it, because this is all, all of our feelings are relevant to our grief journey, and none of them should be dismissed. But I will also tell you, this is a challenge zone, and I will challenge you to level up. I will challenge you to grow. I will challenge you to do better because I've done those things for myself and it's hard and it's messy. It's hard to realize that part of the shame that you feel or part of the feelings that you feel maybe are is shame. And does that mean you're truly explicitly or externally ashamed of your child? No, it doesn't mean that at all. But what it means is that you may be carrying in that 80% of subconscious thought that you're, you're working from a old rooted bias that if you don't confront and deal with, you won't be able to overcome and you won't be able to turn that around and make it match your explicit feelings or your external feelings. And that can be hard work to do. Because we feel like if we actually talk about it, that somehow it it all ties into the guilt and blame, the guilt, blame, shame game that we play after suicide loss. But I will tell you that there's real, real growth to be had in these hard places. And so that's one of the challenges I have for you is to address your own implicit biases towards suicide and suicide loss and the quote unquote type of people that in their lives, because once we get in there and educate ourselves and understand and read and discuss and bring it out in the open and truly understand suicide and suicide ideology and depression and the brain and how the brain works, those implicit biases dissolve where that's concerned and we no longer carry that around and we can truly, truly have the subconscious in that area match the conscious. And that's where real growth occurs. And that's where we can really then go on to affect a change in others. So remember, I just said, start with yourself. But then after you've done that hard work, that's when you can go about changing how others think and being willing to be brave enough to confront what somebody says to you. Because what I'm saying to you is you can't always, there's a point in time in our grief and that sometimes changes daily and weekly, even monthly that we aren't emotionally and mentally in a good place to even do that. Like I wouldn't even recommend it if it's going to be detrimental to your own health, but there becomes a point when we've been through this journey to heal ourselves in that way 
that we are able to, I don't want to say confront, it's not a good, but you know, on some level, address others through empathy, through understanding, through education. You know, one of the things I often lead with when somebody says something implicitly bias, whether they know that I've lost my son to suicide or not, I'm now way more willing and, and probably way more likely to address it. And they often will say, um, well, I just don't understand that or that doesn't. And I, I will say I didn't before either. And then I go on to explain the how and why of of whatever it is that we're addressing with their particular biases towards suicide and educating them and helping them to understand. And when you empathize and say, I thought the same thing as you did before, then we're not suddenly passing some sort of judgment on them and we don't put them on the defense. And all we're doing is educating them from an empathetic standpoint. And that's where we can make real progress with people. And then by the very nature of it, we can make continued progress with ourselves as we do this. And before I wrap up today, I want to touch base on um, an article that I will link in the show notes. It was in an Oregon, I don't know, I think it's probably just an online journal called the Statesman's Journal. Again, I'll link to it in the show notes. And it was an article about a woman named Marley Rowell. It's just a few years old. Um, I believe she lost her husband to suicide in 2009, but the article was written just a couple of years ago. And she's interviewed extensively. The entire article is about her. But and it's about her um, coping with the loss. Um, You know, this loss that uh, where we often need a bunch of support, but find ourselves completely alone. And, you know, this isolation is at the heart of one of the most difficult things to deal with after suicide loss, we feel so alone. Well, that ties directly to the stigma and the biases that I'm talking about. However, more of it ties back to some of our own biases that we are putting ourselves in that isolation, then we probably have to if we choose to be more external about it. And I believe she did that. Like, that's why this article spoke to me. One of the things she says, and she's an artist, and she put together an exhibition that's really powerful. But one of the things she said that stuck with me is suicide is so taboo, and the hush is toxic. It really makes healing harder. And again, I I hope that you'll take time to read through it. And there's multiple videos where she was interviewed in the article um, that are what I really enjoyed. But it's about the whole hush and the toxicity of, she doesn't call it implicit bias, but that's exactly what's going on. And it's what she talks about is interwoven with the idea that we're met differently by people in the world after we lose someone to suicide but how we present ourselves is also different and important. So, and requires thought. So I would challenge you as I'm often do as I'm ending today and thinking about a couple of things that I want to challenge you with, which is have you faced any of your own 
biases or stigmas surrounding suicide in general? And if you have, how has that helped you progress in your healing? And if you haven't, maybe it's time that you do that. It's been so healing for me to do exactly that and to educate myself. I always, always feel like knowledge is power. And there's so much about this loss that's terrifying. Grief is so much like fear afterwards, says C.S. Lewis, right? But facing our fears, it's hard. It's super hard. But the takeaways are immensely powerful. Because, you know, we have to be aware of something in order to change it. And often, with unconscious thought, we're not aware of it. So it becomes important that we're willing to go into our unconscious and we're willing to admit things to ourselves out loud that we're thinking or feeling so that we can bring it forward and turn it into something powerful. Because awareness and activism do cause change. We have to create a movement that reduces stigma around mental health and mental illness so that we quit losing less people by suicide. But we also have to do that same thing about grief and for grievers that have lost someone by traumatic, unexpected, sudden loss like suicide. We have to be able to step out of the shadows ourselves and make grieving normal and okay and healing and productive. And I will link a couple of anti-stigma campaigns in the show notes as well, places that you could go to help reduce your isolation and the social awkwardness that exists for people bereaved by suicide. And if you have any way that you would like to contribute or comment or let me know how you feel about this, please do reach out to me. You can always reach me by email at melissa at theleftoverpieces.com. Please bear with me. I only check my email a couple of times a week. In that email, I do still work a full-time job. And so it might take me a few weeks to get back with you. But I, I promise I comb back through those emails regularly to make sure I haven't missed any. And you can also um, Instagram uh, message me and let me know that you've sent me an email too, just in case I don't see it. But I would love to hear what any of you think on any of this and by no means is how I feel or what I think definitive, but I appreciate you spending time with me down the rabbit hole today. I appreciate you being willing to at least do the hard work of thinking about all of this. It's hard stuff. I know. And my thoughts are running everywhere as I am in the final weeks approaching the six-year anniversary of the loss of my son Alex by suicide on August 7th, which this year coincides with a Sunday, which is going to be the kickoff of season four. So I have a very special episode planned for that day in his memory and as a tribute to the very reason why I do this podcast and all of the other work that I do with suicide loss survivors. So that's all I have for today. I appreciate you and we'll talk soon. Bye.